Greetings. I'm Rab Houston, Professor of Modern History in the University of St Andrews, and you're listening to one of my series of podcasts on the history of psychiatry in Britain from the time of the Renaissance to the present day. Today's podcast is the second of three about suicide in the past, and I'm going to be looking in this podcast at patterns. Despite the problems of evidence that I mentioned last time, which mean that we see suicide largely through legal filters in the past, it's clear that patterns of suicide in Britain between about 1500 and 1800 had some prominent features. Some of them are still evident today, others are really quite different to to today and some of the discussion today I think you may find upsetting. I have to say it was a shock to me when um, research uncovered it. So first of all let's look at some patterns which are broadly still recognisable today. I have a whole list of them. First of all, considerably more men than women took their own lives in the past, about three or four times more. Secondly, the sexes used different methods. Women characteristically drowned or poisoned themselves, whereas men were more likely to hang, cut themselves or shoot themselves. Thirdly, suicide was most common in spring and summer, especially at the turning of seasons. Fourth, recorded suicide seems to have been rarer in Wales than in England until the 20th century, and that may also be true of Scotland. Fifth, men seem to have killed themselves more for material reasons than anything else, mostly money troubles, whereas for women, emotional causes such as bereavement or problems in love predominate, at least in the minds of those who survived them and who attributed causes to them. And finally, single people were overrepresented among suicides compared with their share of the population. And that means people who'd never married or people who were widowed because divorce was very difficult until Victorian times. By the way, uh, suicides were rare in 19th and 20th century asylums and that's because of the close supervision regime over patients. The heavily padded blanket which is the illustration for this week's podcast was used to pacify manic and potentially suicidal patients. Uh, Less gentle methods such as manacles, restraint belts and restraint collars were also used. The patterns I just outlined are broadly the same today, very broadly. But the age structure of suicides was radically different in early modern times. Distinctively in early modern England, there was a pronounced spike amongst adolescents and young adults, who in modern Britain have the very lowest rates. In The 16th and 17th centuries in England, fully one suicide in six 
was aged 14 or under. And that's roughly the same as children's share of the population. A quarter of suicides investigated by coroner's inquests were aged 15 to 24, and that compares with a sixth of the population, meaning that that age group of young adults is overrepresented. The most overrepresented group was those aged 60 and above, who were twice as likely to kill themselves as their share of the population would lead us to expect. For those in later life, suicide may have been a logical way out of physical and psychological pain at a time when medical interventions could have limited efficacy. But it's the experience of the young that jumps out in historic Britain. And I'm going to try to explain two reasons for this. What links the two reasons is that the context in which people grew up, the experience of being a child and a young adult, were radically different in the past than they are in the 20th century or the 21st century. Now, first of all, growing up is tough now, but it was a lot harder in the past because children went out into the world much earlier. Prolonged education, delayed assumption of adult responsibilities, and dependence on parents of what we expect in the modern West. This was definitely not the norm for most young people in Britain until the late 19th or 20th century. Instead, boys and girls alike left home in their early or mid-teens to live, work, learn skills and to make a little money as apprentices, servants or labourers in someone else's household. And that was how most people passed the time until they married between their mid-teens and their mid-twenties, which is when most ordinary folk married in the historic past. Living with another family eased the transition to adulthood. It was a way of growing up. But it also created the potential for loneliness, unhappiness, bullying and exploitation. It's no coincidence that by late Victorian times, when the context of growing up had changed, this spike amongst young people had largely disappeared. And that brings us to the second reason, which is that the civil rights of children were not a central concern of legislators until Victorian and Edwardian times. Before then, children's rights were firmly subordinated to patriarchal authority and courts almost always supported parents or masters in cases of child abuse. The first Act of Parliament for the prevention of cruelty to children by adults including their parents was passed as late as 1889. Coupled with restrictions on child labour and the enforcement of prolonged education, 
Legislation protecting children began irrevocably to change the experience of growing up during the 20th century. The modern Western societies in which I guess most of my listeners come from are highly child-centred. Safeguarding the welfare and protecting the rights of the young is, for us, of the highest importance. The past was very different. Even within biological families, certain types of children were especially vulnerable. Around 1600, a third of all marriages in England were remarriages following the death of a spouse, meaning that there were many stepchildren who might have difficult lives. Their woes feature prominently in early modern literature and drama. Moving ahead in time, the late 19th century age pattern was closer to the present day one, where the incidence is low in youth and climbs steadily to be highest amongst those aged 55 years and above. In late Victorian and Edwardian times, suicide was characteristically an older person's choice. In the present day in Britain, the most vulnerable age groups are those aged 40 to 55 years for both sexes, with a less pronounced late-life peak for men. Tragic though it is, less than 100 children aged 10 to 14 killed themselves in the UK in the last decade. Children under 10 are not recognised in modern suicide figures and therefore are not included. So the early modern pattern of child and youth suicide is of a wholly different order of magnitude to the present day and it tells us that growing up in the past was very, very different. So, these historic patterns tell us much about the social world of suicides in the past. Understanding topics such as recognised causes gives glimpses into the elusive mind of those who took their own lives. I want to pursue this quest next time by probing the psyche of the suicide and the attitudes of relatives and friends who outlived them. I know this topic isn't exactly cheerful. I've researched it for a number of years and it takes its toll. But it is important and I hope you'll be able to join me for the last of the podcasts on suicide which tries to get inside the mind of those who took their own lives. <laughs>